Hello, and welcome to episode 107 of the Decarceration Nation podcast, a podcast about radically reimagining America's criminal justice system. I'm Josh Ho. Among other things, I'm a formerly incarcerated policy analyst, criminal justice reform advocate, and the author of the book, Writing Your Own Best Story, Addiction, and Living Hope. Today's episode is my interview with State Senator Sharif Street about his work to bring criminal justice reform to Pennsylvania. Senator Sharif Street is a Democratic member of the Pennsylvania State Senate who has represented the 3rd District since 2017. In 2018, Street was elected vice chair of the Pennsylvania Democratic Party. An attorney by profession, Sharif began his public career as a community activist organizing a town watch group while in law school. Before being elected senator, Sharif worked as a staffer for the Pennsylvania Senate, serving as the chief legislative advisor to the Democratic chair of the Housing and Urban Development Committee and had the primary primary responsibility for overseeing legislative, housing, environmental, and economic development initiatives. Welcome to the Decarceration Nation podcast, Senator Street. Look, uh, thank you. Glad to be here with you. I always ask the same first question. That's kind of the comic book origin story question. As the son of a former mayor and nephew of a state senator, you were raised in politics. But how did you get from where you started to where you were running for office yourself? And more importantly, how did you get invested in criminal justice issues along the way? Uh, absolutely. So um, it's interesting. The origin story for me was being the son of a guy who's selling hot dogs um, and uh, an uncle and an uncle was doing the same. Uh, and they were protesters and activists. Uh, and so my earliest memories were wrestling, us standing out and protesting and fighting for social justice. Uh, over the course of their lives, uh, they moved from activists to elected officials. My father became a mayor. By the time my father actually became the mayor, I was a grown man with my married with a child. Um, so my uh, my formative years are his journey from or my father's journey from um, uh, from you know guy born on a dairy farm moves into the city becomes an activist for social justice up to being mayor, which happened like I said in my in my early adulthood. Um, and the, that activist stream about fighting for social justice, um, the idea that we're pushing to make the system better is incredibly important to, you know, why I'm doing what I'm doing. When I went to law school and, uh, and, and even when I was undergrad, part of my focus was having an education that would allow me to understand the system so I could improve it. Uh, I always, always had a, a yearning to make the system better. But I grew up in North Philadelphia, a community that that had been disproportionately impacted in, in a negative way by a criminal justice system. I grew up knowing people who um, were, my first time I visited a, a state correctional institution, it wasn't because I was a, a lawyer um, or a legislator wanting to learn how to reform the system. It was because I was visiting a friend um, or a relative who was, it was actually a relative the first time relative who was incarcerated. Uh, first time I became um, knowledgeable about gun violence was because I knew people in the, in the community that were shot. Uh, and at, by 12, I'd seen someone be shot. Um, so both sides of it, both the uh, perpetrators and the people who were, uh, and, I, and I came to understand at a very early stage that the people who were doing the shooting and the people getting shot and the people who were using drugs and the people who were selling drugs and the people, uh, or uh, many cases, parts of the same community and in some instances, the same families. And so systemic change was needed. 
I worked for Senator Kitchen uh, while I was in law school, and uh, who I know most of my life, um, on an internship, uh, an externship through the University of Pennsylvania Law School, uh, and really uh, came to have some real appreciation for the kind of good we could make in the legislative process. Uh, and, um, you know, ran for office, and wasn't successful at first, but eventually convinced the people of uh, of third district to elect me senator, and 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 uh, then wanted was able to take the challenges of fighting for what is right, uh, and for forming a system that desperately needed it to the legislature, and got there and and immediately began to work on the issues and educate people on all sides. I worked with uh, former senator Stuart Greenleaf, who was a Republican chair, from a, uh, a, a on a lot of uh, a, a lot of um, these issues. Um, we toured the state and talked about criminal justice reform. I worked with longtime advocates like my colleague Senator William Anthony Hardy Williams on the Democratic side, who I'm working with on uh, parole and probation reform now. But never forgot talking to the activist groups, but also the churches and mosques and synagogues about it. Understanding that we needed a full gamut of community stakeholders to uh, to get things where they are, um, and uh, I believe we've made some progress, but we've got a long way to go. And just out of curiosity, do you kind of remember your first, you know, roll up your sleeves kind of legislative fight? What did and, and what did you learn from that, that you can share with people who might just be starting out in political activism? I guess my first roll up the sleeve legislative fight as as an elected official would have been um, when the governor was trying to close SCI, uh, was trying to close the state correctional institution. Eventually, SCI Pittsburgh was closed, um, and I noticed that there were Democrats. Um, who were against um, who were against the governor and who actually wanted to keep uh, who didn't think we should be trying to reduce uh, prison population because they had people in their districts that worked in prisons and wanted prisons to remain open and there were Republicans that like Senator Greenleaf who were allies and what I found is that you, you have to meet each legislator and talk to them about their issues where they are and then there were folks who hadn't considered the fact that there were other alternatives to just subsidizing uh, their workforce by putting prisons there that maybe we could create uh, other kinds of productive jobs and they hadn't considered the humanity of the inmates. So I found that there was real value in talking with everyone, not making pre, uh, predisposed um, uh, assumptions about where people stood on the issues and that working together we could, we could get there. Um, and ultimately we did we're able to close that correctional institution and we're able to redirect a lot of that money into education and reversing what many have called the, the uh, school to prison pipeline. We're now resor- sending resources from corrections to education and sort of reversing the flow of that pipeline. And do you have any advice for kind of people just starting out uh, in terms of what they, sh- you know, how they should get in or how they best could get involved or what they should know about what you learned from that process? Look, I would say to a person who's not elected, you um, you got to be, be prepared to stand up for what you believe in and talk to people in your community about your issues. Once you get elected, you got to do the same thing. Um, but then you're going to be working with people who were elected by different people, come from different communities. Understand that there are value, there's value in their perspectives, even with you disagree, even if you disagree with them. And the person you disagree with on this issue, on one issue today, might be a person you're able to find common ground with on another issue tomorrow. On each issue, you've got to build cobble together uh, 26 votes if you're in the state Senate and 102 in the House to get it to the governor's desk. And that may not be the same individuals on each issue. So be prepared to be open-minded and talk with people from different perspectives and understand 
that uh, while you're you want to fight for what you believe and try and win on every issue, there may be different coalitions that help you get there, and you shouldn't take it personal if people disagree with you on issues, but just understand that that's where they stand on this issue, and uh, you know, you'll disagree, agree to disagree, and then uh, fight hard, fight hard to win on that issue, and then maybe you're working together on another issue. I'm glad you brought that up. Uh, where I live in Michigan and where you live in Pennsylvania both have kind of similar legislative situations. We both have Republican-controlled legislatures and governors from the Democratic Party. Despite this, both of our states have been able to get a lot of criminal justice legislation uh, passed over the last several years. Uh, what has made this possible where you're at in Pennsylvania? Well, I think it's we've, we've been able to be able to find middle ground. Um, you know, there are there are some people. Um, there are lots of Democrats who support criminal justice reform because they believe it to be a, a civil rights issue of of our time. There are other people in the Republican Party who are motivated because they believe it to be a moral issue that their faith tells them needs to be addressed. And then there are other Democrats and Republicans who are interested in this issue because they recognize that the the, the fiscal um, that, it doesn't make good fiscal sense to have large chunks of the population uh, warehoused in uh, in in, uh, in cells, and more. And then there are other people who recognize that we had, mass incarceration has not made us a safer society. We are by far the largest um, per capita prisoner of people in the United States of any nation, but we are nowhere near the safest country in the world. Um, and so people recognize maybe we need to be re re-examining this and looking at this differently. I think different people get there for different reasons, but uh, it's been it's been good that we've been able to talk to people about all those all those issues and help bring people together uh, on getting some things done. There's been a lot of talk about kind of bipartisanship lately, and not always in the kindest of terms, but in both of our states. It's literally impossible to get anything of substance done without active participation from the from the Republican Party. Uh, how have you been able to find common cause uh, across the aisle during kind of these incredibly partisan times? Well, you know, um, for instance, some of my work around marijuana uh, legalization. I've got a Republican. We've got. I'm a co-sponsor of the first bill to ever have a Republican co-sponsor. Uh, and that is legislation I'm working with Senator Dan Laughlin from Erie. Um, and uh, what we found is that Senator, there, were, there were issues that Senator Laughlin hadn't thought about. And by having real dialogue, we were, able to, we were able to talk about it. He hadn't considered the fact that although usage of uh, marijuana by folks that are white and black and Latino and Asian is roughly the same, that blacks and uh, Latinos are four to five times more likely to encounter law enforcement nationally. Um, well, when he, and when he realized that, there was a fundamental sense of his fairness that was triggered, um, that folks who are conducting themselves in similar ways should, be, should receive similar outcomes. Uh, and then he talked to his son, and, and they were younger, it was part of a younger generation, who explained to him that you could already get cannabis, and that in fact, um, it, it, you, it would, that it, if we legalized it, we would be able to at least regulate it and control what people were getting. And so that's how he got there by because I talked to him about some issues and then he went and talked to people around him that he trusted and believed and they, they verified some of what I was saying was true. And then the economics of it makes sense. He's in an area that needs to grow. I'm in an area that needs to grow. On other issues like on uh, criminal justice reform or reforming the probation and parole system, I talked with uh, Senator Cameron Bartolotta uh, and she was willing to work with folks like 
uh, me and uh, my colleague, Senator uh, Anthony Williams, to look at how we could address some of the issues around uh, uh, out-of-control probation or parole. She was concerned both about the cost structure and also about the fairness issues. Um, and uh, I worked with her and with groups like Americans for Prosperity, who are concerned about the, the fact that fiscally this does not make sense for our country. Um, and so, uh, and, and what we've been able to find is that um, if you really talk to people, have a real conversation, uh, we can educate well, folks and ultimately find common ground. So I've had a lot of success in working with uh, legislators across the aisle on issues as diverse as uh, uh, presumptive eligibility for home care with Senator Brooks, who's a conservative Republican from a rural area, Senator Laughlin on marijuana uh, dec uh, legalization and, dec and, and expungement, auto expungement of uh and, and sealing of records of people who've had convictions, and Senator Cameron Bartolotta on issues like uh, probation and parole reform. One of the things your state was able to get done was becoming the first state to pass uh, automatic expungement, clean slate, uh, for criminal record sealing in the United States. Could you talk a little bit about how that happened? Well, look, the clean slate legislation came about because uh, folks were listening to one another. Uh, we work with a lot of stakeholder groups like um, like the ACLU, but also Americans for Prosperity, um, Cut 50, Reform. They were all involved in the process, and, and both in the House and the Senate, uh, there were coalitions formed that included both Democrats and Republicans. And so in the Senate, you had folks like uh, my colleague, Senator Anthony Williams, and myself working with uh, Republicans. Um, and in the House, you had uh, leaders like uh, on the Democratic side, uh, now Democratic Whip Jordan Harris, who worked with uh, Republicans there. And there were, and because we were able to have a people from the East and the Western parts of the state, uh, the uh, Republicans and Democrats from urban and rural areas, were able to have real conversation. But it wasn't just with um, legislators from the House or Senate. It was also with the stakeholder groups who allowed us to go out to the communities and talk to ordinary Pennsylvanians. And what we found was we were able to build some real consensus in the public around it. And that consensus in the public made it a lot more politically palatable for people inside the legislature to vote for it and support it. You mentioned, you mentioned my friend Rep Harris, or Whip Harris, and he and I joke around about this a lot, but I mentioned to him pretty regularly that Michigan recently beat Pennsylvania and becoming the first state in the country to do automatic record sealing for some felonies. Uh, Rep. Harris promises that this could be coming soon in Pennsylvania. Is this something that you're on board with? Is Pennsylvania going to catch up with us in Michigan soon? Absolutely. We're going to get there. That's, that's good to hear. Um, we just finished the year where COVID raged across our country but also in particular in our prisons and jails. Both of us have worked very hard to address this problem. Can you talk about your attempt to kind of broaden medical parole and increase increases through commutation uh, throughout the COVID period? Absolutely. So uh, medical parole has been something we've been talking about for a while. Um, and uh, the COVID-19 just uh, reinforced some of the issues. One, it's, it, uh, folks who are eligible for medical parole, either because they're geriatric or because of severe medical situations, um, have some of the lowest uh, uh, likelihood of recidivism rates, some of which are like 1% or 0%, um, actually less likely to commit crimes than the, general, than the average person in the general public. 
Secondly, um, uh, we were looking at, uh, it was important because during COVID, we actually found that the density of people in prisons could cause, um, could actually, could increase the likelihood that there would be outbreaks and spread. Um, infamously in California, we saw the prison system and the spread in the prison system is one of the drivers of spread throughout the Commonwealth, throughout the state of California, both inside and outside of the correctional system. So we recognize it was both pragmatic for preserving the health of all Pennsylvanians, those incarcerated and those not incarcerated, those uh, uh, outside the walls to uh, reduce prison population and geriatric parole would be why. The other thing is looking at the, while we're trying to get a, uh, an expanded uh, geriatric parole bill, we, we uh, you know, advocated for expanded use of the commutation process to get people out. And, and additionally, we pushed the governor to uh, do furloughs um, and release people that way, which he did some, did it to some extent, uh, not didn't go quite as far as uh, uh, the advocates and I would have liked, but he did do what he thought he could in that space. So it, it, it recognizes that there, it is, there is both public uh, fiscal sense in doing it, and there's also a moral sense. Because think about a person who's only in jail for a fixed period of time who gets COVID and dies because of the circumstances of their incarceration. That that maybe two-year, three-year sentence, five-year sentence just turned into a death sentence. And that, and that in and of itself would be a huge miscarriage of justice. And did, you know, I mean, I know there's been a lot of, I know for me at least, there's been a lot of frustration uh, and some victories uh, throughout the kind of COVID fight and, and, and for these these policies. Have you learned anything from that fight that might help us in these kind of crises in the future? Uh, how can we best get kind of everyday folks and politicians to kind of care more about the health of our incarcerated kind of brothers and sisters inside? Well, I think we need to recognize that what happens in terms of the disease spread and vectors inside of uh, the park, inside of, the, of the correctional facilities on the outside are related. That in fact, inmates are from a perspective of disease spread, part of the community. So if you have an outbreak in the, in the correctional facilities, that outbreak, because people are delivering things, people are working in the prisons and going home at night, uh, people are, that, that there is, there is transmission between prison, uh, you know, um, between people going in prisons and the community. The other thing we know is that the the way p- uh, inmates tend to get initially infected is because someone from the outside brought it in. They're not traveling anywhere. The inmates. So we realized that that you can have a simple thing of someone working on the outside uh, infecting inmates that causing an outbreak, which then caused lots of people who work in the prison to bring the disease outside, and the two can create sort of a cyclical effect where the, uh, in the well, it starts with an initial uh, maybe lone person infected on the outside, what comes into the correct part of correction, spreads disease, which then causes lots of people to have to return to the outside to spread disease. So we needed to educate people that those folks behind the wall, one, they're people with families, lives, and folks who care about them, and two, what their fate when it comes to disease vectors is directly tied to the fate of the communities in which they, they are housed. Uh, we've recently seen kind of a, a, a start of a bunch of campaigns for what's called second look legislation uh, for the resentencing of people with long sentences. And we've seen second look for crimes committed while someone was a juvenile uh, recently passed in, in, in the District of Columbia. You've been fighting for similar considerations in, in Pennsylvania. What have you proposed and where are you in that fight? 
So for juveniles, you know, uh, the courts have already determined that they have to get a second look and they can't be given life without parole. Um, for everyone else in Pennsylvania, we, we, we're advancing legislation. We've talked with a lot of stakeholder groups. I think we've made some progress. Um, I would I would suggest that, that we've talked with people who we've particularly talked with folks who are both have family members who are murdered and family members who are serving life without parole. Um, and those groups are can, they are able to talk to people on both sides of the issue and help folks find common ground. Um, in Pennsylvania, we have some of the peculiarities of a felony murder rule where you don't even have to take a life yourself and you can still be subject to life without parole if you were part of a crime where someone else took a life. And because of some of the peculiarities of our system, let's say a person were to go into a store with the, merely the intent to rob the store, um, pull out a gun uh, and ask the, the store clerk to, um, to, uh, to, you know, to, to fill the bag. The clerk were to um, attack the person who was trying to rob the store and in the process of defending his or herself in the midst of an attack, uh, the person uh, being robbed, the person who's robbing the store kills the store clerk. Well, you might charge that person with murder one, but because of the, the provocation and the uh, attack of the store clerk, it, it, it goes from not murder one, but murder three. But if you're sitting in a car, you are involved in the commission of a uh, provocation as an affirmative defense. You have to argue that something happened to you to do it. So the person who's, say, driving the car away was involved in the commission of a crime. There was no provocation. It resulted in someone dying. And therefore, that, because that affirmative offense is unavailable to them, the person who drives the car away actually can get life without parole, while the person who pulls the trigger and takes the life will often get twenty-five year or get a twenty-five year sentence um, because that person um, committed murder three and the other person committed murder two. Um, and so that's been another reason that we said, look, we need to give the pro board of probation and parole a chance to look at all these cases. Another group of people. That uh, require that that tend to engender sympathy, um, where people, women who were convicted of uh, life without parole in Pennsylvania under murder one, simply because they killed uh, their abusers, and this is before the battered spouse defense was um, <clears throat> was a thing, um, uh, and we know that there were people who were locked up and who would now be not locked, not convicted at all because we have a, a bad, an accepted use of the battered spouse defense. But before the battered spouse defense was, uh, was, uh, was became the norm, um, there were women who were locked up for just uh, killing men who probably would have killed them anyway, and they were their abusers, uh, and that so many of them are still doing life without the possibility of parole. So because we have these, uh, and then there are people who just made extraordinary transformations. They may have been 19 when they were locked up and who are now you know, 55 or 60 years old and completely different people and no longer pose a threat to society. And in fact, probably could teach people something if they were to be released. Because of the totality of all of these circumstances, I think there are more and more Pennsylvanians would agree that uh, allow the Board of Probation Parole to review the, the, those cases and make determinations as to who should be released and who should remain is a prudent step and it can save uh, significant money, particularly as older people um, who are often geriatric can be much more expensive to house. For decades, uh, a lot of prosecutors and law enforcement officers have suggested sort of that a sentence is a bit like a promise between the state and, and, and the victim of crimes. Uh, you talked a little bit about meeting with victims groups 
uh, when considering kind of second look legislation or things like that, uh, how do we kind of, how, how do we bridge that gap? How do we get to the point where everybody sees that it's better for the community sometimes to let folks uh, get relief? Well, there are a couple of things. One, um, we put in the legislation provisions and Pennsylvania has passed Marcy's lawsuit before in any probation parole hearing, there are victims' rights to participate in the process. Uh, because we have uh, passed those provisions under law, this would simply, those rights would, would be vested in this process as well. Uh, second thing is this. There are groups like Mothers in Charge who are made up exclusively of uh, women who have had lost a child to, uh, to, to be murdered, to violence. Um, and Mothers in Charge supports uh, doing this, supports this kind of second chance le- legislation. Uh, if you have groups like that who can speak in a very powerful way about it, that makes sense. I'll tell you, I, I was talking with them. Personal testimonials can be really important. Talk to another guy named um, uh, Will Little, who goes around and he teaches emotional intelligence. He talks about how when he was young, he was engaged in negative activity and he took a life. Um, he did, and it was not murder one or murder two. He, he so he was paroled, and after he was paroled, um, he was working for years and later met the brother of the person whose life he took. And that guy said that for years he had intended to to take Will's life if he ever met him. They were able to reach an accord where uh, they actually, where the the brother forgave him, and they now go out and talk about forgiveness and also how to make better choices and how to stop the cycles of violence that happen in their communities. Um, and 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 they are another great example of people who are able to go out and talk through and and, and help um, communities do better. You know, sometimes we have this image of victims as people who are sort of off in a uh, white picket fences off in the suburbs and the perpetrators of crime living in completely different downtrodden neighborhoods where they go out to commit crime someplace else. But most crime crime victims are victimized by people who live in their own neighborhoods and most people who, uh, uh, most people commit crime right where they, in the neighborhoods where they live and work and play. And so the cycles of violence uh, and sometimes retaliatory violence um, are only exacerbated by an overly harsh system. And so finding space to have people have these dialogues, these discussions, and see that the typical victim may be a victim in one instance, a family member of a victim in one case, and a family member of a person uh, being prosecuted in another. And so uh, victims and what they desire in the way of public policy are not monolithic. And certainly a large percentage of them recognize um, the need for criminal justice reform because they literally have friends and family members who are sitting on both sides of that equation. You mentioned that, you know, there's a lot of kind of there's a there's a kind of prevailing narrative in people's heads about how, like, for instance, victims are perceived. Uh, I know you've done some work on. Uh, bail reform, and we've had seen across the country that some of these narratives, kind of uh, these public safety narratives that that kind of tough on crime narratives, tend to grab a hold of the microphone and the public's attention. How how do you think we get, you know, start to break through with some of the the stories like what you're talking about when uh, 
people who've done harm and people who have harmed folks get together and actually uh, create a different narrative? Well, I'll tell you on bail reform, and, and I want to digress just for a second. Sometimes the right person who can create a big microphone has to be unfortunately dragged into a situation for people to pay real attention to it. So I had a constituent of mine who um, committed some relatively low level um, crimes, um, went to jail for a brief period, was released, and then had was on pro, and then because of technical violations, probation, pro- parole. Um, has been almost a decade in and out of the system uh, when the time uh, that well, for the violations of technical violations of probation and parole far exceeded uh, the original sentence and he was never retried for any uh, any new offenses. Um, this, this constituent sort of brought attention to it nationally about why this, uh, how bad this, this system was. And it was because he was a talented young man. Uh, his name uh, Robert Ramique Williams uh, is his, the name that his mother calls him, but in the community uh, nationwide, his stage name is Meek Mills. Um, he lives in, in the neighborhood I'm from, and I know, um, and, and, uh, and he's a constituent, and I know him. And his case um, really pulled attention to. I mean, he would he was reincarcerated for things like riding a dirt bike or. Or, 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 or crossing a state line when we knew he was going there to do a positive thing for work um, and, and, uh, and, and resentenced to real jail time under circumstances where everyone knew he didn't pose any real harm to society. And what he did was he spoke up and said, this is not just, I am, I'm visible because of my uh, music career, but there are many other people in my neighborhood who face the same circumstances who are unknown and unnamed. So he helped. So he helped create reform along with Jay Z and others, and he helped bring some real attention to the issue of probation and parole reform. This um, is an issue we're still working on in Pennsylvania. Um, and so there are sort of celebrity cases where um, there are people who come from ordinary circumstances but have extraordinary talents, and that causes them to be able to elevate an issue. Um, and, uh, and then there are lots of just regular folks who are working hard to, uh, to change the narrative. Groups like I said, Mothers in Charge and the ACLU and others who have been talking about these issues and, and pointing out the need for reform. And um, I'm, I'm pleased that we've been able to work with many of those groups and help to at least uh, inform the narr- that, that there is a broader narrative. And finally, you know, it's interesting. I come from a neighborhood where people are most like, where we have the most gun violence, uh, yet I support uh, uh, second chance legislation. It's not because I want people to get shot in my neighborhoods, because I realize that uh, that forming the criminal justice system actually will make people less likely to get shot, because the system, in order for people to have confidence in it, must must be perceived to be fair, and it needs to be perceived to be fair by the very people who are most likely to be subject to it, and those are people of color in the inner cities, uh, and. Many of the reforms we've talked about will fundamentally make it um, um, more, uh, will make the system seem more fair to uh, people in those communities. Yeah, you know, obviously part of your state, Philadelphia, is uh, right in the middle of kind of a contentious race for district attorney right now. And I know you probably can't weigh in too much on that. But one of the main issues. Already that, yeah, seem- <laughs> Oh, yeah. All right. Well, you know, I just wanted to be considerate. But, you know, um, there's, you know, one of the main things that's being, you know, raised in that is this kind of spike in homicides that's occurred across the entire country. 
Um, you know, and, and for whatever reason, in every different city, in every different town, people use that rise in homicides, which seems to be somewhat universal, to uh, attribute it to criminal justice reform that's particular in each of those play in each city, in each town. Do you have any kind of thoughts about kind of, you know, where we are on that and kind of talking about how to talk about that and how to message around that? Well, one, I, look, I fully support our district attorney and the reforms that he's made. I think uh, D. Kressler has done a great job. Um, the second, and look, not a perfect job, but a great job. Um, and, and certainly his reforms were needed. Um, the second thing I would say is this. We know that uh, for the spikes in crime that we've seen during COVID mitigations have been more correlated with poverty, uh, joblessness, and the lack of opportunity than they have anything else. The, the way district attorneys choose to prosecute crimes in different cities can vary wildly from people who are big time tough on crime DAs to people who are reform DA, the district attorneys that want to make sure that everyone's treated fairly and rights are respected um, and considered more progressive. What we have found is that crime, if there is a uptick in poverty and if there's uh, that will 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 will, will follow. And that the uptick in poverty and despair um, often creates an uptick in the addiction as well. And so those uh, upticks in addiction and poverty are always going to be positively correlated with, uh, with, um, with uh, upticks in crime. And those things are beyond the scope of a district attorney's job to deal with. Um, and those are some of the kinds of systemic things that as legislators, we need to look at, uh, pay very close attention to, because the answer to those questions will more likely yield us a safer society in the long run than merely locking up people up. Yeah, you know, I think that there's kind of this feeling that, uh, you know, people get upset when they hear that problems are systemic, but a lot of the crisis in prisons, jails, violence, reentry, all that stuff is also a crisis in housing, employment, education. Uh, what are your thoughts about kind of, you know, what government could do to address these kind of systemic problems and how we get to the point where that is what government addresses? Uh, you know, I, I couldn't agree more. We have to start talking about the social determinants of, uh, of violence. Um, the fact that poverty, lack of access to health care, lack of access to education, uh, the post-traumatic stress of, uh, of, of other violence can yield more violence. Um, and, the untru- and the untreated post-traumatic stress of entire communities. Um, those are things that we could deal with. And it would explain while political, um, you have political ebbs and flows in, uh, in, in how we approach criminal justice uh, prosecutions, although, and more tough on crime DAs and approaches than, uh, than reform approaches, yet there is tons of gun violence that happens in big cities uh, nationwide every, uh, every year, year in and year out, despite the fact of, that many years all of these legislators have taken a tough all crime approach. You know, the fact that we have district attorneys all over this country with different approaches in, uh, in, in how to uh, affect crime, um, it, it, but it still rises. Um, but when you look at what it is positively correlated, things like um, uh, lack of health care, uh, increases in poverty, increases in addiction, uh, lack of uh, services to deal with post-traumatic stress from either violence or other or other or other uh, indicia of poverty, 
those things are always positively correlated with rises in, in crime, no matter whether the district attorney wants to lock everybody up or wants to be as fair-minded as possible. And so when we look at those, what many of us are calling the social determinants of violence, we can deal with some of the systemic violence. And that's why we have sort of this base load of murders that occur year in and year out, decade in and decade out, decade out nationally. We can, if we want to address that, not, not just the spikes, but the base load, we really do have to start looking at the social determinants of uh, violence. Uh, there's a lot of cynicism about politics right now for a lot of, you know, good and bad reasons. Uh, you know, we've also seen an awful lot of injustice in our communities over, uh, in particular over the last few years, but certainly over decades. Um, we have kind of national politicians in some cases kind of apparently uniting around an insurrection. Uh, you're uh, at least approaching running for potentially running for Senate. Uh, what, what keeps, what keeps your, what keeps your faith in the political process uh, running for office and electoral politics so strong? Well, you know, I've seen that, that, that you can, you can address things in a systemic way through, through government, uh, through government. And it is a way for people who are ordinary folks without a lot of money to band together and, uh, and, and participate in a way to have their voices heard. You know, I went to Morehouse College in Atlanta, Georgia, which was the capital of the Confederacy. And uh, it, was, it, it really did my heart good to see my fellow Morehouse man um, ener um, energize uh, voters working with a Spelman sister from across the, from our sister school right across the street. Um, uh, with, uh, so Stacey Abrams organizing people and with uh, and ultimately electing my Morehouse uh, brother, uh, Raphael Warnock, Reverend Raphael Warnock, Senator Reverend Raphael Warnock to the United States Senate um, uh, in a place that had been the capital of the Confederacy. It showed that uh, we, we can change. Um, who would have thought that a black guy and a Jewish guy would have been representing a state that was the capital of the Confederacy in the United States Senate and elect and be elected on the same day? says something about uh, the changes that America is making. It says something about the potential for democracy to grow as the people who are living those democracies' ideas evolve. Um, and so I was really pleased with what happened in Georgia. Uh, I have watched a time in Philadelphia where, you know, a guy who was being harassed by police for selling hot dogs on the, on the corner with his brother after he moved into a big city from a small farm was able to ultimately um, be the uh, chief executive that hired and commanded those those very same police forces. As I watched my father go from hot dog vendor to mayor and heard stories about uh, him coming off the dairy farm. So I have seen the power of democracy to take ordinary individuals and elevate them. And then I've seen the ability of, folk, uh, of, of systems where we did things like we came together when President Biden brought us together to address COVID-19 and had a government that was able to mass distribute um, vaccines and get them in, in all kinds of communities to actually push back the tide of, of death from COVID. I remember when President Bill Clinton put together empowerment zones and, and, and money for affordable housing um, in ways that when we watched high-rise uh, public housing developments that were full of crime and and, and, and we're just uh, uh, really um, 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 the incubators for social problems become uh, almost transform communities into suburban looking uh, houses with little uh, literal picket fences in the middle of the community, still housing poor people, the same poor people who used to live in the towers. 
I watched that kind of power and I, and I realized, look, government, when it's at its best, can be transformative to people's lives. I was the chair of the board of one day at a time of drug and alcohol recovery program. And using government funds and, and dedicated people, we were able to treat 50, uh, help 56,000 people on an outpatient basis a year. That kind of scale, that kind of good only happens when government is involved. It only happens when government is used to empower regular people and regular people are empowered to take command of their government. So I am very optimistic, but we've got to make sure that we don't have, do things that suppress the abilities of people to vote and to participate in the system. As long as the system is open and fair and there's a competition in the marketplace of ideas, I believe, uh, as Dr. King said, while the uh, arc of justice is long, it ultimately bends, while the arc of the universe is long, it ultimately bends towards justice, and so do democratic systems in the long run. So uh, now I'm going to kind of give you a, a kind of tough theoretical question. In a perfect world, what do you think our our criminal justice system would look like? <laughs> In a perfect world, um, our criminal justice system would be fully integrated with uh, excellent schools where people where you don't have literacy issues, and so the defendants would understand their rights. In a perfect world, we wouldn't have people. We wouldn't have people who, who are uh, committed crimes because of addiction or post-traumatic stress. In a perfect world, judges would be able to fairly determine, distinguish between people who have had a bad day and people who are bad people. In a perfect world, everyone would have access to adequate representation, and the people representing those folks would not be overworked, wouldn't have uh, would have reasonable caseloads, and would be able to provide uh, meaningful representation after serious consultation. In a perfect world, the number of people who are incarcerated will be much, much, much smaller because a perfect world, we would not, the world, the word mass incarceration wouldn't be needed because we would not in mass need to incarcerate people. Um, so we live far from a perfect world, but I always tend to, to, to think of it. Uh, there was a song that I used to like, a hip hop song, uh, Nas and, uh, and Lauren Hill that talked about if I ruled the world. And the first thing it started, they talked about was reforming the criminal justice system and, and legalizing cannabis and making sure that we had law enforcement officers that people could trust and feel comfortable in. Um, and I, I'll tell you, um, so in my perfect world, and the song was simply titled Imagine. Uh, and so I've been trying to imagine a perfect criminal justice system since I was a kid listening to hip hop. Uh, and I'll tell you what, I'm still trying to imagine it. And now we strive for it every day. Any other favorite hip hop artists you'd like to, to, to shout out? We've got Meek Mill, Lord Hill, and Nas. Yeah, I'll shout out Jay-Z for the work that he's doing with Reform and, of course, uh, local uh, hometown favorite Meek Mills for the work he's doing with criminal justice reform as well. Um, but, but there are so many people who've spoken up on this issue, and we need people to keep on speaking up, uh, whether you're a hip-hop artist, a bus driver, a police officer, an elected official, a mayor, a congressman, or the president of the United States. We need you to speak up, speak out, and let your voice be heard on, on an issue that's so important to so many. This year, I'm asking people if there are any criminal justice-related books they might recommend to others. Do you have any personal favorites? Um, hmm. you know, there are so many books written on criminal justice reform. Yeah, I, I end up having to read all of them almost. So, yeah. <laughs> you know, uh, we talked a lot about the the the, uh, the social justice implications, and I will tell you. Um, 
Carter G. Woodson did a book called The Miseducation of the Negro. It's an old book, and some people, younger people might not like the language, but that was how people were called, referred to at the time, uh, black people referred to. And, uh, and it talked about, and if you look at that, um, some of the things have changed, but some of the, um, what he d- deals with is some of the social determinants of of our, of our set of uh, crime in there and why and uh and of poverty and how they were particularly directed at um, uh, black and brown folks and i think that was um important and then i think if you want to just talk about um how you can make the system how maybe we can use how can we can use government to do reform um, uh, Congressman, my Congressman Dwight Evans had a book called Making Ideas Matter. It's not specifically about criminal justice reform, but it is about how we can uh, make government, make big ideas uh, uh, change, uh, how we can take big ideas, turn them into public policy that changes the lives of people. And I would recommend both of those books. I always ask the same last question. What did I mess up? What question should I have asked but did not? Look, I think this was a good interview. I appreciate the fact that you're highlighting, highlighting the uh, the issue, highlighting the issues. Um, and the one thing I would do, the one question you didn't ask is, what can we encourage ordinary people to do themselves to be engaged? And I would tell ordinary people, if you care about criminal justice reform, one, uh, understand the local laws in your system and what laws are change, are affected by local government. What, ha- what changes need to happen at the state level and what need to happen nationally at the federal level and understand where the legislators in those systems stand on those issues and then push the ones, encourage the ones and support the ones who are fighting for reforms that you believe in and, uh, and, and, and speak out and, and, and encourage the ones to change who take positions that you don't believe in. An educated electorate ultimately will make what uh, is the best way to reform our system. And, and each person should understand that if you are a person in this system, you have some ability to influence it. If you're a voter, you should vote. If you're too young to vote, you can influence others to vote by educating them. And so young people have educated their parents about change. Um, and I've got these books, uh, quotes by John Kennedy and Martin Luther King behind me. Um, uh, and then a picture of, you can't see it, Lyndon Johnson. That movement where King and Johnson and Kennedy were changing things, the people who inspired those change were young people who felt empowered to change society. And so for our young people, and, and not so young people, each of us has a responsibility to get engaged, get involved, and be active. Because when we do that, we really can change the system. Well, I want to thank you so much for taking the time to do this, Senator Street. I really appreciate it. I appreciate your, uh, you as well. Thank you so much. And now, my take. I just saw the news that the DOJ has pushed for an execution. I don't know much, how much more I have to say here. The person they want to execute was one of the Boston bombers. I get why people feel the way they feel. But killing someone doesn't send the message that killing is wrong. It sends the message that killing is justice. And that is or should be considered wrong. There are lots of other problems with the death penalty too. Billions of problems. There's problems with effective representation. With non-unanimous juries. With racial disparities. And the sheer cruelty of the act itself. I guess I just wanted to share that the last year of the Trump administration, when they went out of their way to kill 13 people as quickly as they could, was very emotionally devastating to me and many other people across the country. And I think that most anti-death penalty folks 
you know, I think most of us were on board to some extent with President Biden because he promised that he was against the death penalty. In fact, when Jen Psaki was asked about this exact question, this exact case, she said the president was against the death penalty. You know, the idea that Biden's DOJ is pushing for an execution makes me absolutely sick. You know, I understand that the DOJ has some level of independence, but when Biden has come out explicitly and said, even in this case, that or his his representatives have that even in this case that there shouldn't be you know that he doesn't believe in the death penalty either the people at the DOJ are are are, are putting the president out to dry or the president is flip flopping. You know we have South. This is just a terrible time for this too. We have South Carolina moving to firing squads and other states are starting back up to gas people to death. I mean, what the heck is wrong with us? And strong presidential leadership was critical in this moment. When we kill someone, we are saying much more about the United States, about us, than we are about the people we are furious with and executing. I just hope we find it in our hearts soon to stop with all this lust for violence and revenge. Things have really gotten pretty dark over the last several years, and particularly in the last year in this country. Maybe in this one way, people on the left and on the right, or even at the very least, religious people on the left and on the right, can come together on this one thing. It is time to end the death penalty. As always, you can find the show notes or leave us a comment at decarcerationnation.com. If you want to support the podcast directly, you can do so from patreon.com slash decarcerationnation. For those of you who prefer a one-time donation, you can now go to our website and give a one-time donation. Thanks to all of you who have joined us from Patreon or have given a donation before. You can also support us in many non-monetary ways by leaving a five-star review on iTunes or add us on Stitcher or Spotify or from your favorite podcast app. Special thanks to Andrew Stein, who does the editing and post-production for me, to Ann Espo for helping with our tra- transcripts and social media images, and Alex Mayo, who helps with our website. Make sure and add us on your social media and share our posts across your networks. Also, thanks to my employer, Safe and Just Michigan, for helping to support the Decarceration Nation podcast. Thanks so much for listening to the Decarceration Nation podcast. See you next time.